When reading the Bible, how do we know with certainty that what we're reading is trustworthy, reliable, accurate? Those are all good questions, and we don't leave our minds outside the door when we enter into the presence of God and read his, his word. Um, we, we can use our intellect, like the Bereans. They used to listen to what Paul said, and then they would go back to the scriptures to see if what Paul said was correct. And in the same way, we want to use our intellect. So there's a couple things to um, understand about the Bible since it's very important to, to know its fundamental source. One is that how God knows us is through our prayer and how we know God is through his word. So it's important that we understand the fundamentals about the scriptures, where they came from and why we can trust in them. And I would say this, if you were sharpening something like a knife or a sword or scissors, how you would do that is you would use a like object. You would, you would sharpen uh, metal against metal, a sword against another sword. Or if you were to cut a diamond, how would you cut a diamond? Well, you would use another diamond. And, and the same is really true with, with scriptures, that scripture defends itself. Just like the, um, the example of if you had a caged lion and, and you're trying to figure out the best way to defend that caged lion, well, the best way is to open the door and let the lion defend itself. And that's what the Bible does for us. The Bible's authenticated in many different ways. Um, in one way, because Jesus quotes from it. Uh, he quotes from Isaiah and, and, and uh, other uh, sources of the Bible. Uh, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found um, several decades ago. And... Um, they were preserved scrolls that when we take the scrolls that were a thousand years old, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we lay them side by side with the version of the Bibles today, we see that they're, they're um, the same, they're, that, that they're dependable and accurate, that God has preserved his word. And then we also have history and archaeology. Um, we do not live, uh, the Bible does not live in a, in a vacuum. Uh, there's, the Bible speaks of kings, it speaks of wars and battles, it speaks about landmarks, it talks about wells, and it talks about walls that were built, and it talks about uh, mount, mountains and streams and rivers, and it talks about um, events like earthquakes and, and things like that. Um, so those things are also in the history books. So these are not things that just stand alone, uh, talking about kings and battles and, and castles and so forth. These are things that are in the history books. Archaeologists have, every time archaeologists find something, it has never disproven something from the Bible. It has only gone on to prove the accuracy of the Bible. And then we have prophecies. There's things that were spoken about thousands of years before it happened, or a thousand years, or hundreds of years before it happened, and then it happened exactly like the Bible said that it would. So we'll go through a couple details of these. Um, so... How to read the Bible? Well, the first thing is what you would want to do is you, if, if there's something you want to know about the Bible, the best thing to do is to read everything about that subject matter that the Bible says. Because if you're just reading one verse, then it's left up to that person to interpret, to say, well, what that means to me is, and the truth of the matter is, your opinion doesn't matter. Who cares? My opinion doesn't matter. God's opinion matters. So if we, there's something we want to know about family, if there's something we want to know about angels, if there's something we want to know about 
judgment. Well, then what you do is you read everything on that topic in the Bible, you pull it all together, and that will give you a full understanding. If you're just reading one portion of it, it will cause uh, confusion. For example, uh, when you look at um, really the two most important things um, related to God are really his birth and also his death. So it's Christmas and Easter are really the, the two main focuses of, of, um, of religion, if you will. So, so since Easter is really superior to Christmas because the birth of, of Jesus is certainly very important, but to us, it's really more important that he died for our sins. If he just came and lived, we would still be in a sinful condition. But the fact that he came and lived a substitutionary life for us is really more important. So Easter between the two is really the more important holiday. Um, so with that being said, if you asked somebody or if you thought to yourself, well, tell me the story of Easter. It's the most important um, holiday that we celebrate in Mark. Um, every time we go to church and we hear the the Easter sermon, um, we've we've heard it many times. We should probably be able to recite the story uh, verbatim. However, if I really asked you some questions, like when did it happen? Um, was it dark? Was it sunrise? Um, who was there? Was it Mary Magdalene or were there other people? Now things get a little clouded. It gets confusing. So if you want to understand the Bible, what you do is you read everything about it. You read what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have to say about, uh, about the, uh, the death and resurrection. So, for example, if you were just to read um, Matthew, you would read that it was dawn and that uh, the only people that were there were Mary, Magdalene, and Mary. But if you read Mark, you would read that it wasn't dawn, it was sunrise. And Mary Magdalene... Mary, the mother of James, and Solomon were there. But if you read Luke, you would see it was early morning, and Mary Magdalene, Jonah, Mary, the mother of James, and Joanna were there. But if you read the Gospel of John, you would read that it was dark, and only Mary Magdalene was there. So you have conflicting um, descriptions. It was dark, it was early morning, it was dawn, it was sunrise. Well, which one was it? Was Mary Magdalene there? Was, were they all there? And the answer is this. You, you pull all the information together, and then this is the sequence of events. So, when things began, Mary Magdalene, who lived the furthest away outside of town, she began the journey to the, um, uh, to, to the, to the tomb because she wanted to um, anoint Jesus' body with burial spices. So, when Mary Magdalene left, it was dark. When she left her home, um, she walking, she's walking down the pathway, and it was dark. At dawn, Mary Magdalene picks up Mary, who also is on the way to the tomb. And then, at sunrise, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and Solomon meet along the way. So now you have three women walking away. Now it's starting to get um, a little bit later into the morning. And it says it's early morning when the three women join, Mary, uh, join Joanna on the way to the tomb. As now the four of them are walking... They're wondering um, how they're going to move the stone. You know, uh, Jesus's tomb is covered by a big stone, and you have these women that you know they're not strong enough to lift it. So they're they're discussing this, and then the other gospel is talking about how that there was an earthquake that happened and opened the tomb, and it opened the tomb not so that Jesus could get out, but it was so that the the women could see in, so they could see that it was empty. 
And then um, there's some descriptions in one of the Gospels that say when this earthquake happened, this event happened, that the guards were frightened and they left. Remember, the tomb was sealed and the guards were there. So that begs the question, well, what happened to them? Uh, why didn't the women see the guards and, and why wasn't the tomb sealed? Because of the earthquake. So the frightened guards went to go report. And then while they were reporting, they were devising a cover-up story. Mary Magdalene, who was really the younger of all of the women, and the women carrying 50 pounds of burial spices, Mary Magdalene became impatient and she walked ahead because the other women were walking too slow. She was anxious to get there. So Mary Magdalene, being younger, she walked ahead of the other three women um, as they are carrying the burial spices. Mary Magdalene um, goes into the, or sees the tomb that it's open. She doesn't go inside. She leaves and goes the opposite direction to go find Peter and John to report to them what Mary Magdalene had found. The other three women, not realizing any of this had happened, they eventually arrive to the tomb they see that the stone has been rolled away. Uh, the three women um, enter the tomb. They walk inside the tomb. And then there they see two angels. Two angels. One of the angels speaks. They're in white. And they say, do not be afraid. The angels show them that there is no body. And they tell the women that, um, that, uh, that, that Jesus has arisen. The three women um, meet with Jesus as they are leaving the tomb. And the three women um, leave. Jesus tells them, go tell the others. So, so um, the three women leave in the same direction that they came to go to the upper room to find the other apostles, not Peter and, and, um, and John, uh, but the other apostles that are there. So they go to explain to everybody what had happened. Judas at this time had already hung himself, and Thomas, doubting Thomas, was not there. So it wasn't all the apostles uh, that were there, but uh, the women had gone to report what they had seen and heard. Mary Magdalene now gets to see Peter and John. She tells them that she had gone to the tomb. The tomb was open. She's not sure what's going on. John and Peter, they, being young and, and uh, enthusiastic, they run to the to the um, to the tomb. And John uh, explains that he got there first. A little competitive that that he got there before Peter. So now John and Peter are at the tomb, and, and they both um, go in and see that the tomb is empty. They see the clothes exactly in the position that they would be if there was a body inside of it. So, so Jesus had just emerged from where the burial cloths were, and they were in that same position. And they were contemplating what the significance of this was. Peter and John left to go to the upper room to meet with the other apostles, and to tell them what they had seen and heard. And then Mary Magdalene comes in. She's exhausted from having walked with the women, gone over to see John and, and, and Peter. And now she gets to the tomb, and Mary Magdalene is by herself. She arrives to the tomb. Mary Magdalene goes into the tomb. She sees two angels, and, um, and then Jesus, at this point, reveals himself to her. Um, he, he um, she thinks that Jesus originally is a gardener and says, "Where's my Lord? Where have they taken his body?" Then Jesus reveals himself that it's that he's not a gardener; that it's actually Jesus. And then Mary um, ad adheres, uh, holds on to Jesus, and Jesus um, 
goes on to tell her that, uh, you know, he, um, it's not the time yet. He's not here permanently. He's going back up into heaven. And then Mary Magdalene goes and she leaves and goes sees the other um, 11 apostles. Once again, Tom, uh, Doubting Thomas is not there at this time. He comes in uh, a week later in the, in the story. And then the three women and Mary Magdalene, now they're all exchanging stories on what they saw and what they heard. And all of that happens up in the upper room. And then the following week, um, now the, the holy day is no longer on Saturdays. Now um, the, the church is starting to emerge. The temple is being left behind. And now the, um, the religious services that we celebrate today really happen on Sunday. And that's when um, it was the first day of the following week on Sunday. And that's when Thomas was there. And then Jesus had walked through the, um, the walls and, um, and said, you know, put your hand in my, my side and so forth. So the way that we know that story is not to just one, read one gospel, but we take everything that's there and then it fits together in, in a perfect uniformity. So there's no confusion and it gives a full um, understanding. Now, when we look at the, at the prophecies, uh, there's many, but I'll just give you a, a flavor of, of some. For example, Isaiah in 714, this is 700 years before it happened. Isaiah had prophesied that the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. 700 years later, Luke in 134 says, how will this be, Mary, asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Micah in 52, 700 years before um, Jesus was born, prof um, um, uh, prophesied that out of Bethlehem will come one who will rule over Israel. In Luke 2.15, it says, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that had happened. In Jeremiah 31.31, 600 years before, it talked about a new covenant. Luke in 22.20, uh, talk, Jesus spoke about in the upper room about uh, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. In Joel, 835 years before Jesus was born, there was a prophecy about the Holy Spirit coming upon the people. It said, I will pour out my spirit on all the people. In Acts 2.4, the day of Pentecost, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 107.29, when talking about Jesus stilling the, the seas and the water, um, in, in Psalms, about a thousand years before it happened, he stilled the storms with to a whisper. The, the waves of the sea were hushed. And then Mark uh, 439 records, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, be quiet, be still. Zechariah 9.9, 520 years before Jesus um, was born, uh, prophesies about Jesus, the Messiah, coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. It says, riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal uh, of a donkey. Matthew 21.7, they bought the donkey and colt, and Jesus sat on them and entered Jerusalem. Uh, Zechariah 11, 12, 520 years before Jesus was born, prophesies what Jesus would be thinking and saying while on the cross. It said, so they paid me 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26, 15, so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah 50, uh, 50 um, point six, 700 years before. It, it talked about how uh, Jesus was... Um, was um, uh, uh, suffering the punishment of before going to the cross. It said, I offer my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. 
In Mark chapter 14 and John 19, it says, Some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. In Psalm 22, 18, a thousand years before, um, before this happened, it, it said, uh, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. In Mark 15, 24, it says, Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see which each would get. Psalm 22, 16, a thousand years before this happened, it says, They pierced my hands and my feet. Luke 23, 33, they crucified him. Amos 8, 9, 755 years before it happened. Um, I will make the sun go down at noon. Matthew 27, 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. Psalm 22, 1, thousand years before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 69, 21, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Luke 23, 36, they offered him wine vinegar. Psalm 31, 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46, Father, into your, into my hand, into your hands I commit my spirit. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgression. John 19, 34, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. Psalm 16, 15, nor will your Holy One see decay. Luke 24, 22, they, they went to the tomb early in the morning, but they did not find the body. Hosea, on the third day he will restore us. Matthew 28, 5, I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. So those are some of the prophecies. There's many more. But this still raises a question, how do we know the specific books of the Bible are to be relied on and are trustworthy? Well, there's, there's different ways. One is that Jesus authenticates, for example, Jesus authenticates the book of Genesis. In Matthew 19.4, he says, haven't you read? That's something that Jesus says many times. Um, haven't you read? Well, where would you read that? You would read that in the scriptures, in, in what we would call the Bible. So in Matthew 19.4, it says, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them man and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, where did Jesus read that? He read that. What was he referencing? He was referencing Genesis. So, so God, Jesus, is authenticating that Genesis can be relied on as something to be believed and trusted. Same thing happened in Deuteronomy. Jesus authenticates the book of Deuteronomy in Matthew 4.4. 4. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Same thing happened with Psalms in, in Luke uh, 20.42. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be a son? So Jesus is quoting specific, quoting and naming the book of Psalms so we can trust that. So, and we continue straight down the, every book uh, is, is really validated in a, in a similar way. Uh, Jesus authenticates the book of Solomon uh, when he quotes the, the queen of the south. Uh, came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And Jesus said that now here, meaning himself, is one greater one greater than Solomon. That is, as wise as Solomon was, the, the smartest person on earth, Jesus said he came and Jesus is wiser, smarter than Solomon. 
So he was showing his um, intellect superiority that out of the wisest person in the world, Jesus said, I'm greater than Solomon because I'm the one that gave Solomon his wisdom. So um, every book of the Bible continues along this way. Um, Isaiah authenticates the book of Isaiah in Matthew 15, 2, excuse me, 15, 7. Um, Matthew, um, the book, the gospel of Matthew, well, how, how is he validated? Well, he's validated in Mark uh, 2.13 because that's when Jesus um, called out the apostles. He chose them. He said, I choose you, I choose you. He called them out by name. So everything that Matthew writes about is validated because Jesus validated Matthew. And then we get to other things. Um, uh, Zephaniah, how is he validated? Well, he's validated by Apostle John. Um, Jesus doesn't quote from the book of Zephaniah, but Apostle John does. So how is John validated? Well, the same way that Jesus, um, Jesus gave um, uh, selected John. John is um, in the inner circle. Um, so Jesus has accepted uh, John. So anything that John writes about has the seal of approval from Jesus, that John's not a liar. He's not deceptive. Um, he's to be trust, uh, trusted. Same thing happens with, with Apostle Peter. Uh, when we get to Romans, well, now there's something interesting because now we have Apostle Paul. Well, Apostle Paul was not one of the 12. He came after Jesus had died and, and had arisen. So how would Paul be validated? How would his um, epistles be validated? Well, he's validated by Apostle Peter. And here's what, it, here's what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.15 and 3.16. Peter writes, Bear in mind that our Lord's patient means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own description. So Peter is not only validating that Paul got his wisdom from God, but he's also equating what Paul wrote to the other scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, so that it's equal, that uh, what we're reading in the New Testament is, is as equal and as validated as the things that Matthew, or excuse me, that Moses and um, the other um, Isaiah and the other prophets uh, would have written. And then we continue to uh, Mark. How is Mark validated? Well, Mark is validated through Apostle Paul. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.11, um, in verse 11, only Luke is with me. Get Mark, uh, meaning Mark, Mark Luke, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful in my ministry. The only book, which is interesting, that does not have any quotation, is not quoted by any other um, source, if you will, Jesus doesn't mention it, is the book of Esther. When reading Esther, there's no mention of God in it. There's no mention of the Lord there's no mention of any deity, and nobody else is quoted from it. So why is the book of Esther included with the, um, the other 66 books or the other 65 books? And that is because when you read Esther, Esther is a historical book. It's really just filling in information from a historical point of view as far as what was happening at that time. It records about, the, um, about Mordecai, one of the characters, and Mordecai is referenced in the book of Ezra. So we know that Mordecai is a real person because Ezra in 2.2 references. So finally, 
how do we know that um, that the that the stories are true that uh, when we're reading about creation when we're reading about Noah and the ark and so forth how do we know quotes them so why would Jesus quote something that was not true for example Jesus speaks of Jonah in the belly of fish as a true historical event in Matthew twelve forty. Jesus says, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. Regarding Noah's ark, Jesus speaks of that as a historical event. In Luke 17, 26, just as it was with the days of Noah, so also it will, will be with the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, be given in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. Sodom and Gomorrah, very similar thing. In Luke seventeen twenty nine, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed all of them. Same is true with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, creation, angels, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Satan, what Jesus says about his himself and his own deity, what Jesus speaks about the mind of God and his purposes, um, about the it talks about um uh, science um, as far as like the sphere of the earth so you know the Bible never said that the world was flat um, popes and human beings said that but the Bible never did the Bible said that the the sphere of the earth the circle of the earth um, when God looks down at from heaven he sees a circle and then uh, along that line just the final point is that when you're looking at science once again we do not leave our, our minds at the door to believe what is in the Bible um, the Bible is scientific. Uh, God is the creator. Therefore, God is the scientist, if you will. So how do we prove that? Well, in the, in, in the, in the sphere of science, there's five elements of science. Space, time, matter, force, and action. So all scientific study really factors in one or two or how these two... Um, uh, affect each other. For example, the creation of diamond is time and force um, and, and matter. So it, it, it's really taking those elements together to create a diamond. So the very first sentence of the Bible speaks of the five elements of, of science. Space, time, matter, force, and action. Verse 1 of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens, Space, beginning, time, earth, matter, God, force, created, action. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the five elements of science.